But I do think that you have to have this gut check all the time of where does your heart really lie? You know, Jesus says where your treasure is there, your heart is also. Is your is your treasure in career success? Is your treasure in getting a, a job on a, at a studio? Is your treasure in all these other things? Because if that's it, it's going to fade. And the cost to your family is not a cost I'm going to make. This is the Act One Podcast. I am your host, James Duke. Thanks for listening. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a good review. My guest today is writer-director Nathan Scoggins. Nathan's latest film, What Remains, tells the story of a small-town pastor who is forced to reckon with an act of forgiveness when the convict he forgave for murdering his wife returns to town five years later while the town sheriff investigates another murder that may be related. The film is in select theaters and on demand beginning December 2nd, so please be sure to check it out. Some of Nathan's other credits include The Least of These, a film I helped produce, which was released in 2011 by Universal and stars Isaiah Washington and Oscar nominee Robert Loggia. Nathan's other credits include the TV movie The Perfect Summer, starring Eric Roberts, and the independent feature film Redline. He also recently directed two episodes of an upcoming television series for Sony Affirm to premiere in 2023. Nathan is one of my closest friends in the world, and he has a lot of great insight to share. I hope you enjoy. Nathan Scoggins, welcome to the Act One program. It's good to see you, buddy. Good to see you, too. Thanks for having me. Uh, I've been looking forward to having this conversation with you because I've been obviously journeying with you uh, in the process of you making this uh, film that we wanted to talk about today. So I'm excited because, first of all, we want to let people know right out of the gate that uh, when they hear this podcast, that they can go out and see the film. So just people will be able to get this podcast right away. So can you just tell everyone right now, um, when will they be able to watch the film? Where will they be able to go and see it? How can they get access to your film? What remains? Sure. So we are, um, <clears throat> we are available in theaters and on demand starting December 2nd. Uh, so we're doing a day and date release. So we are going to be, um, we're screening in 23 or 24 markets around the country. Uh, we just got word today that uh, they're adding some more markets for us, which is fantastic. We're starting with five markets on December 2nd, uh, LA, New York, San Francisco, Florida, and Rhode Island, and Texas. And then we are expanding on December 8th to other markets, Massachusetts and Maine and all that kind of stuff. In addition to the theaters that we're available in, however, we're also available on iTunes, we'll be available on Amazon Prime, we're gonna be available on demand. So that's like Comcast and, and different cable services. So we're available uh, in a number of different places. Um, and that's all rent- And that's all on, uh, so the streaming, um will be available at the same time as the theater no streaming is a separate deal or sorry um, not will, streaming but what you yeah. but the on demand that, that's yeah. all yeah december 2nd yeah december 2nd for for on demand streaming uh we have a separate deal for streaming that uh we have but we are not announcing yet due to our distributor uh wanting us to hold off on that so we're going to announce that separately but uh but yeah we're available on demand starting december 2nd Okay, so this weekend, December second, they can go out and hear. If you're if you're hearing this the week that it comes out, uh, this weekend, December second, and where can they go to? Where can they find if it's playing in their area? Is there a website? 
Um, there isn't a website per se. We're announcing stuff through our social media so that they can follow what what remains film uh, at what remains film on Instagram, and uh, we're we're rolling out our uh, our theatrical locations uh, over the next uh, couple of days. So Perfect. you know, it's funny with with <clears throat> social media and all that stuff. It's it's almost kind of like like I think we're <laughs> I think someone's trying to build us a website, but I don't. <laughs> tend to go to websites for like information anymore. It's all social media. So, so somebody was like, well, build your website. It's like, okay, great. Will you uh, send information out by carrier pigeon as well? Like, I feel like it's, <laughs> you know, I just, have, I just have no idea. I mean, I th- I'm assuming that like Fandango and all that stuff will have us, uh, have us as well. So, so yeah. So, so there is no www dot backslash semicolon dash. Uh, although it actually, but it's, is- but it's what remains at what remains on Instagram is the best way they can uh, they can at, find the information at what remains film at what remains film. Sorry, got it. at what remains film on Instagram. I'll I'll put it also. Uh, people listening, you can look at the links that I'll attach to this podcast as well. Thank you. Um, very cool. So that's I wanted to spend time talking about this film. Congratulations, my friend. I have seen it. Um, uh, I had the privilege of seeing it at the the world premiere. You premiered premiere, awesome Jimmy. Festival. You were there. That's you right. were there in your and 19th we'll, announcer voice. Oh, here we here we are at the theater. Coming to the theater now. Oh, is the, is the star of the movie, the big star of the film, Chris Williams, ladies and gentlemen. That's that was Jimmy, just off in a corner. Uh, announcing it uh, until the theater owner came over and told him, please stop. There's, please stop. there's no microphone. And- <laughs> um, we'll talk about a little bit about that whole kind of fun night, that uh, awesome film festival, but um, let's, uh, let's take a few steps back and let's just introduce people a little bit to people who, who don't already know you. Um, so you're a, you're a writer, director, producer, you've been working in the business Um what got you started in uh, filmmaking? Was it was it something that as a kid you just um, uh, you were just obsessed with movies? Was it was it something later in life? What got you started? By the way, the funny thing is with this conversation, Nathan and I have been such close friends for so long. I already know the answer yeah, to all knows. of these questions. Knows. So, so I have to play like I don't know the answer to these questions. But yeah. so, so Nathan, tell my. <laughs> Tell my audience. <laughs> yeah. Nathan, what's your last name again? How do yeah, you yeah, yeah. That? It says here, Skogins. Is that, is that, am I pronouncing it right? Is it, is it Scroggins? Is that what it is? That's, that's exactly right. Um, this is, is going to be a three-hour podcast, and it's just going to be you and me riffing. Yeah, <laughs> tell me, but seriously, tell our audience a little bit about kind of where, where, where you first kind of maybe fell in love with film and decided this is what I want to do for a living. So, um, so I grew up in Rhode Island, and uh, Rhode Island is a very small state. Um, it's the state that you, you know, if you if, if if you were a kid and you were like asleep while your parents were driving along the East Coast, you could like fall asleep in Massachusetts, wake up in Connecticut, and you wouldn't have missed anything. Like Rhode Island is like it's like the forty five minute pass through state, and and that's not to diminish Rhode Island at all. It's just it's a small it's a small state. It's a small it's a small part of the country, and. And, you know, growing up in Rhode Island, if you said that you wanted to go to Hollywood, it was like saying you want to go to Mars. It just sounded kind of crazy, you know. Um, but I had a, a sort of unique childhood. I grew up homeschooled and I grew up homeschooled. Um, I was really smart for my age. So I read a lot and 
And, uh, and I noticed that there was this thing that came every week in the newspaper that talked all about other movies. And because I had read everything else in the house, except for my dad's systematic theology book, which to this day, I have it uh, somewhere, but I haven't read it. I was like, what, what else can I read? And so I started reading the TV guide and I started reading about all these movies and all this kind of stuff. And that was right around the dawn of the VCR age. Um, and so my parents started renting a VCR and renting VHS tapes. And my parents started showing me, you know, I mean, I remember my mom, I remember saying that I wanted to watch like a Superman movie. And my mom was like, well, if you're going to watch Superman with Gene Hackman, you should really watch Hoosiers with Gene Hackman. And so she made me watch Hoosiers before I could watch Superman 4 or whatever it was. And, and when my mom found out that I loved Empire Strikes Back, which was written by Larry Kasdan, she said, oh, well, if you really like Larry Kasdan's movies, you should watch The Accidental Tourist. I was 11, by the way, when when these things were happening. So so I had this so I had this I had the chance to tell Larry that a couple of years ago at an, at an event. And he was like, your parents were weird. I said, like, yes, they were. Um, but but I think, you know, I mean, like a lot of kids of a certain age, you know, I, I grew up with the Star Wars movies, but I was aware of who George Lucas was. And I was aware that he was a writer. And and so I was fascinated by that. And so I started watching these movies, but paying attention to who was writing them. So, you know, I'm familiar with George Lucas, I was familiar with Steven Spielberg, I was familiar with some of these writers and filmmakers um, as I just kind of watched movies. I mean, we would rent movies all the time from our local blockbuster or whatever, every night or every other night. And so I just kind of started immersing myself in movies, but still it sounded like, you know, that's not a thing for me to do. But I did have this youth theater that I was involved with where I got to be involved with plays. And, and this youth theater... Um, you didn't just act in plays, you wrote them, you directed them, you produced them, you were like the, you know, the, 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 the lighting person for them, you were the concession seller, you were the usher, it was this very immersive thing. And so I kind of got this sense from that theater that like, there were things that like, like you could do this somehow, but it, it, it didn't seem like a viable thing. And so I went to college, uh, but I went to college and I went to a great school, Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut, which had a great film program. And it was there that I really fell in love with movies, not just as entertainment, but also as art. I still remember watching The Searchers and we had this we had this film print, I think, that we that we screened of it. And it was it just blew my mind um, in terms of what it was and what it could do and what John Ford was doing with with his camera. And so I just fell in love. And so I, I started gobbling up whatever film classes I could take. So taking classes on Frank Borzaghi and taking classes on documentaries and taking classes on the history of cinema and all this stuff, I just was immersed. Um, and so it was college when I really fell in love with it. And I happened to go, Westland happened to be a place where a number of very successful film moms have graduated from. Fleischer graduated from Westland and Michael Bay and, and Akiva Goldsman and Joss Whedon and Rick Nasita and a number of people, some of whom I've, I've subsequently become friends with. Um, and so it was just, so Wesleyan kind of was like the next step for me in terms of um, discovering the power of film. And especially like I took classes on the war film, took classes on, on genre films. And I became aware of the, the ways in which film could say something, you know, John Ford grappling with, the history of the Western and the genre of the Western in the searchers or, or, you know, looking at unforgiven and looking at the, the way that, that it, that it calls into question the tropes of the Western. I was fascinated. I was fascinated with it, not just because of the cinematic power, but the thematic power. 
the, the ways in which you, you can say something in a film, you can say something with images that really matters. And the, and the idea, the purity of it as an art form, that it, it, it's not just purely visual because it's not a painting. It's not just purely audio because that's a radio show, but it but incorporates music, performance, lighting, shot choices, frame, like all this stuff. It just, I just was blown away and, and, and felt like, oh, I want to do that. And because I went to Westland and we had like Joss Whedon come back and talk to us. We had Akiba Goldson come back and talk to us who, who met with me when I was a young, young filmmaker just moving out. It, it felt accessible. And I think that's one of the biggest things is, is a filmmaker when it, when you, when you go like, Oh, this is like accessible to me. Like I can do this. Um, that became, um, that became, I think the thing that really lit, lit the fuse was not just the, not just the power of cinema, but the, the accessibility of it. That you, you can do this too. Um, for me, that, that was, that was what really got me excited. And your family, th- this was something that they supported. It was this something that, uh, did you get, you know, maybe in your home church or family members, did you get the, did the eyebrows cock up and people go, what you want to do what now? I mean, again, you know, I think, I think there were some people who didn't understand it and didn't get it. And especially because my dad was a pastor. And so, <clears throat> you know, when your father's a pastor and he's engaged in overseas missions work and when he's, I, you know, I, I learned very early on, not every dad spends the weekend calling the Turkey, the American embassy in Turkey to get you know, prisoners of conscience out of prison. <laughs> you know, we didn't, not every kid had like Arab sheiks coming through and like stopping your house for dinner. Um, <laughs> so again, I was a weird kid growing up. And I think when you're kind of, well, I out, had the, I had the iron sheik. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if you remember him, the wrestler, we, we, we had the iron sheik come through Memphis and he, uh, no, I'm that, just kidding. that was quite a, must've been quite a day for you uh, <laughs> when he drove his, Drove through on his way. Somewhere. By the way, by the way, the the of the three people who listen to this podcast, there's only one of them that gets that WWF reference. That's it. So, <laughs> yeah. And we but. know who you are. <laughs> um, um, no, so 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 I think when you grow up in that kind of environment, you know, my dad was my dad was a lot of marriage counseling and all that kind of stuff, and so I think a lot of people kind of assumed that I would do the same thing. A lot of people assumed that I would go to Christian college, or a lot of people assumed that I would do do that. Because, you know, because I came to faith from a young age. And so it wasn't outlandish to assume that. But I, I, I don't know. I think my mom in particular was very much supportive. I remember there was a, the, the first and only time Rhode Island hosted a screenwriting conference. The entire state hosted a screenwriting conference. And it was like, you know, 150 bucks or whatever it was. And my mom said, I'm paying for you and you're going to go. And and so, like, you got to hear like Richard Walter from UCLA come in and talk about filmmaking, and, and and Peter Farrelly, and all this kind of stuff. And so, so I was very fortunate that I did have supportive family, um, be because, and they were kind of supportive, probably in ways that a lot of other people probably weren't. Um, but my parents definitely were, and and in fact, my dad was was more supportive probably than I was at a certain point. You know, I I thought <clears throat> when I was twenty, I kind of went through an existential crisis. Um, I thought, well, maybe I should go into the ministry. Maybe I should do that. And my dad was adamant that I not do that. Um, unless someone paid me a lot of money, which he said, that'll never happen because no one pays you a lot of money to go into ministry. Um, but, 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 but he was adamant. And then my father-in-law was also um, uh, very supportive of me. And it's kind of weird when like, you know, your father-in-law is like, yeah, no, no, go ahead, go to Hollywood, join the circus, <laughs> you know, go ahead, take my daughter and uh, maybe you'll make some money. So, so I did the, the people closest to me 
were incredibly supportive. And then I, and then I did have like, you know, like my pastor, Steve Abbott was, was very supportive of me and actually took up a collection when my wife and I moved out to Hollywood at the church and, and they gave us a couple hundred bucks to help us, you know, with gas money and things like that. So, so I, uh, yeah, I, I did have people who were supportive of me, um, probably, you know, going against the grain of what people maybe thought about Hollywood at that time and maybe even now, but I did, I, I was very for, you know, if, if I hadn't had that, I don't know if I would have done it. Mm, that's interesting. I, you know, I, the, it's fascinating to hear the story of people who have been both supported and and not supported. I, it's a, it's an interesting uh, case study, I think, to to talk to people and because there's a um, there's a lot about um, you know coming to work in Hollywood and coming to make movies that there is so mythical and yeah. misunderstood, and there's just a lot of. And, well, and there's and also like, a lot of people who've really been hurt, and 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 so there, there's 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 a lot of good reason for people to have co- worry and concern. So, uh, well, it's that's the thing, and I think I think that I think that to your point, the concern is not unfounded, right? Right, and and I think that the concern, you know, even at a basic level, like how are you going to make money doing this? That is a very real, valid, legitimate concern that people have, and so. And so, you know, I think that a lot of times people, you know, Christians get get stick for, well, you know, Christians think of Hollywood as, as Sodom and Gomorrah and all that kind of stuff. And I, I suppose there's an aspect of that that's true, but it, it's just hard. You know, it's it's hard to step out in faith. It's hard to do the risky thing. We are risk averse as a people, certainly as we get older. And so the fact that my parents, my dad was 50 and, and said, yeah, go to Hollywood, you know, give it a shot. My dad told me years later, he said, yeah, I wasn't really sure if you're actually going to be able to do it. Um <laughs> You know, he said, it wasn't until I saw you on the set of your first feature, at least of these that you and I did together. He said, I, I saw you handling yourself with like Isaiah Washington and Robert Loja, these big guys. And I thought, oh, maybe my son can do this. Um, <laughs> and and I was kind of like, I'm, gee, I'm glad you didn't tell me that earlier, dad. That would have been, you know, not great. But, you know, so I do think that there was a, an aspect of people where it's like, hey, I, we feel protective and 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 it's a risky, it's hard and it's true. But I'm grateful that they... Uh, that they let me be crazy and stupid because I wouldn't be here probably without that support. So you are a, for those who don't know you, you are a bit of a, uh, what we would call a star Wars fan. Um, a little bit. A little bit. And little bit. Uh, my wife is a star Wars fan. Um, I always joke that she gets fresh. She gets mad. Anytime something with star Wars happens, people send it to me. They think I'm the big star Wars fan. And she's like, why do they keep sending it to you? I'm the Star Wars. And I'm like, I know. I don't go around telling people I'm the big Star Wars fan. But I think it's my proximity to her right. and you. Like, I'm between these two huge Star Wars fans. So people just think that I'm... And I, I, I like Star Wars, but you and her are diehard fans. Um, I'd love Look, to... Jimmy, I'm not, I'm not saying any. I'm just saying that I know how to speak a little bit of Shiri Wook, which is, of course... <laughs> the language of the Wookiees, you know, and then, and then you have to ask whether you can, where you, whether you can also speak the which is another uh, dialect of Wookiee or whether you can speak uh Shashik, which is another dialect. of Wookiee. So I'm not saying that I'm a nerd. I'm just saying, you know, you know, based on whether people can speak a Shiri Wook or not. Yeah. I, I'm listen, I'm just glad you're already married with kids. Cause that would, <laughs> you <laughs> I, yeah, I kept that. I kept that on the DL until after I got married. Um, and then my wife was like, you speak what now? You speak what now? <laughs> I'd let uh, that slip um, before we got married. I, I would not be. Yeah, yeah. Um, tell them your story. Tell, tell my audience your story of 
you actually had as a young man, you had an encounter, if you will, with George Lucas. I did. I did. I, I was not, again, our local TV guide, you could write in and get like contact info from people. This is obviously the days before the internet, the days before IMDb and all this kind of stuff. And so I noticed people would write into the local TV guide and they would like the TV guy would tell them like, Hey, if you want to write to Mr. T, here's his address. So I wrote into my local Providence journal TV guide and said, where can I write to George Lucas? I'd like to send him a letter. And so they sent me his, 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 his mailing address. And so I wrote a letter to George Lucas. I was nine years old. And I wrote a letter to George Lucas because I just started doing youth theater and I was interested. I wanted to let Mr. Lucas know that I was available to audition for a part in an upcoming Star Wars film. I, uh, I let him know that I thought I would make, I would make a great young Han Solo. And I distinctly remember writing in the letter, I probably wouldn't make a great Lando Calrissian. <laughs> I literally wrote this in the letter. And I get that this is an audio podcast. My the melanin in my skin, uh, <laughs> your listeners, is not such that I would play. Like oh, a- listen! They knew what color you were when you first started talking about Star Wars. You didn't have to clarify that. <laughs> uh, yes. So I wrote a, I wrote this letter to George and said, uh, "You're welcome. Uh, look no further. You found your new young Han Solo." And so you know, wouldn't you know it? Like six months later, I got a, a letter back. From it's it's literally sitting right here in my office. It was written by Judy Niles, the uh, special uh, events coordinator for Lucasfilm. Judy, if you're out there and you're listening to this podcast, thank you so much. <laughs> and she she passed along a letter from George Lucas where where he said where she reassured me. Uh, this is 1987. Uh, th- at present, there are no plans for future Star Wars films. They have not been precluded or canceled. There are simply no present production plans. But Mr. Lucas, thanks you for your interest in auditioning for a role in one of the upcoming films. I literally have that burned in my brain because when I got it, it was this manila envelope that was so formal with like cardboard backing. And it was my autograph. Uh, He included an autograph for me as well as a couple of pictures from the trilogy. And I have it to this day sitting in my my little office here. And, uh, and, and, And again, it was one of those things that just, it closed that gap a little bit for a, a you know nine year old kid that like Hollywood is like you can you can write to people and they'll they'll write you back sometimes and stuff like that. So I just thought that was that was cool. So yes, that is uh, one of my pride. If if the house burns down, I'm grabbing my Christopher Reeve autograph and my George Lucas autograph. <laughs> Wife and children, if there's time. I'm kidding. I'm, say, kidding. I'm, say, yeah, I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you've got. Plenty of kids. What are, what are you going to do? I do. I do. I do. The ability to make more. That's right. Um, you, so when you came out in, um, I'm trying to remember when you guys came out. What, what was that? 2003? When 2002. You? End of 2002. 2002. Just literally 20 years ago. And you guys, oft, you and your wife often uh, refer to me as your first friend in yes. Los Angeles. Yes. How quickly, how soon had you guys been out here when we met? So you and I met, we had been, uh, well, we, we went to Mosaic, uh, the church that we were all involved in together. That was like the very first weekend we were in LA. We went to Mosaic and we met you then. And I, you and I joke about this. I'm still waiting for you to email me back from that email that I sent you when I ran into you and you said, oh yeah, 
started, you know, everyone's like, oh, you got film movies. You got to talk to Jimmy Duke. Yeah, to Jimmy Duke. So I talked to Jimmy Duke, and Jimmy Duke said, send me an email. I'd love to keep in touch. Never wrote me back. I was lonely, cold. It was, you know, L.A. cold. So it was 80 degrees. But still, it was like, I don't know anybody. There's this man, Jimmy Duke. And, as, uh, and as I've always told, and as I've always said to you, you should have taken that personally. <laughs> you should have. Oh, I, I did, know why you Jimmy. Yeah. Oh, I did. <laughs> um, but we, you know, I think I think my wife, Kate, and I knew that coming out here from Rhode Island, not really having built-in community or anything, we had to just like really dive in. And I do think that's whenever I give talks about surviving in LA, it's like you got to dive in. You got to dive in community. No one's waiting for you. No one's sitting here going, oh, a script. Gosh, we don't have any of those. You know, everyone's everyone's got their lives. Everyone's busy. Everyone's so you just have to like dive in. And so, you know, you were one of those people who we just kind of dove in with. Scott Reynolds was another one. Um, you know, there was this like whole sort of Kevin Wilson was another one. There was this whole sort of community of people who we just, I don't know if crowbarring your way in is like what we did, but like you just kind of have to get involved. And, and so, yeah, you were, you were one of those people who, you know, because we, we always refer to them as black Fridays because we got out here and there was a recession on at the time. It was hard to find work. Again, being out here as a writer, I just wrote a script that was a, a quarter finalist in the nickel fellowship, um, which is like the preeminent sort of fellowship out there for, for writers. And, <clears throat> you know, and so I got it and it meant that I got rejected by, by really high quality places. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, I was applying for jobs and applying for work and couldn't find anything. And th- those Fridays just got so lonely so fast. And it was a Friday night, November, that Kate and I called you and you were just watching basketball over at, over at your house in Pasadena at the time. And we just called and said, hey, can we go over and hang out? And you said, yeah. You, know, you were kind of like baffled that we were calling you. <laughs> I was like, yes, you may come over to my house. That sure. Um, and, uh, but it was really meaningful for us to do that. And, and I think that that's, that is one of the things that, you know, again, going back to why people go be careful moving out to LA, you know, the hardest thing about LA is the loneliness. Um, it's a very lonely city. It's, it's lonely when you're unsuccessful because you feel like you're never going anywhere, but it can be lonely when you're successful too, because a lot of people want to be your friend when you're a success, but they don't necessarily want to be your friend because they're happy for you. They kind of are hoping that your like gold dust will shake off on them and they can be successful too. And so you, you, you kind of never know where people are coming from relationally. So you, you, you try to find these ways to be, um, to have a true, genuine relationship. I still remember a Bible study at your house where you talked about that verse from Proverbs, uh, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but an enemy multiplies kisses. And we talked about what that means in terms of LA is a place where there's a lot of fake friendships and, <clears throat> and a lot of people who love everything. Oh, we love this. And we love that. And it doesn't really mean anything. Um, and it doesn't mean that people aren't genuine, but I think it means that people are just kind of optimistic and want to be positive, but, but it means that they operate at a certain level. But when you want someone who's going to like be there for you in the tough times, you've got to find a different kind of friend, different kind of friendship. And that's certainly what, uh, what you became for us, Jim. I want to talk a little bit more about this. You, you and I have had lots of conversations about just the culture out here and raise, you know, both of us are 
married with kids, trying to raise kids. And this, we have been not, not trying, we have been raising kids. <laughs> We're although, doing it. although there are days when it feels like trying. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, you know, a lot of what you were, you're talking about there, I often refer to as, you know, that you, you talk about the California gold rush. Yeah. And I feel like this industry is the California fool's gold rush, where mm-hmm. uh, people rush out here to pursue dreams, to pursue passions. Some people think God's told them they're supposed to do, you know, whatever. And, um, and then you cut to 20 years later, and they feel unsuccessful. They feel lost. They, they, they maybe had a family that they're, they're divorced, their kids are estranged from them. I mean, you and I have seen some really bad stuff happen, just lives yep. just falling apart that, yeah. um, you know, maybe they would have fallen apart if they went to Albuquerque too. I don't know, but, but it, but, but it's it dried feel, out in Albuquerque. It's a very dry <laughs> place. It's very dry. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but they, but it does feel like a unique thing that happens here in Los Angeles, what you were talking about the way we're spread out here, the way people can, can maybe sometimes be disingenuous and, and use people for not necessarily for a relationship, but, but, and yet having said that there are so many wonderful things about being here. I mean, beautiful things, beautiful people, beautiful churches, like so many wonderful opportunities. And so I'm curious because you do, you, we've talked about this a lot. You try to help a lot of people when they're considering working in the business. What do you, what is some of the key advice that if, if there are people listening to this podcast right now and they're considering um, maybe making a move out here, uh, they're, they're, they're interested in working in film, but they have questions. They're like, can I, can I, can I find a spouse out there? Can I raise kids out there? Can I, um, will I, will I quote unquote, lose my soul out there? Can, and then even on the practical level, Nathan, do they do they have to come here still, or could they go to Atlanta instead or someplace else? What are what's your thoughts and advice for those people? You know, <clears throat> I think the hard thing about LA is that anything is possible, right? Can can you can people do stuff? Absolutely. I mean, people you know, people get discovered all the time. People get people get found all the time. You know, all these things can happen. I think the hard thing is that certainly as Christians we can um, confuse can with will, right? And, 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 and that's certainly true, not just of Christians, but of, but of all artists, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to move out to California. I'm going to get discovered too, because, um, because that's what happens, you know? And, and it's interesting because I think a lot of times people will come out to LA um, captivated by the image. And then 20 years later, they're burned out on it and they hate the image. And the reality is that the image never promised them anything. Like they are a victim of expect their own expectations. And, you know, my friend Corey Pollard, who produced what remains with me, we talk about all the time, the challenge of uh, living with expectation, living with anticipation, but not expectation. And, and how do you anticipate that anything good could happen while at the same time, not expecting it because you know, as, as a, a, a pastor once said to us, a lot of times people resent a Jesus who never promised them what they wanted him to promise them. And I think that's a danger. And so I think that, you know, I have to work really hard to manage my expectations all the time 
of certain projects. And sometimes that means that I can come across as a little bit cynical. But as Ralph Winter, my my friend and mentor, and, and you know, you know Ralph as well, um, has said, you know, I keep my expectations low and I'm rarely disappointed. And and I've had people who like, you know, will come up to you after a talk or whatever and say, wow, you sound kind of cynical. It's like, not really. I don't think I am. I, I've just been I've just been burned enough times or have had enough things not go that I kind of know what to expect of this. And so I think that that if you're if you're you know if you're coming out here or if you're wanting to engage in a creative endeavor at all, it's hard. I mean, you know, we've all heard the, the statistics that there are more NBA players um, and professional athletes than there are professionals working in Hollywood. Um, the odds are long. The average writing career lasts five years professionally. Scott Derrickson says that the town is designed to squeeze you out. You've got to find ways to stay in. It takes a resilience. There was a great book that I read a couple of years ago called Talent is Overrated that talks about how the true measure of someone's professional success is not their talent, it's their grit. Are they willing to just stick it out and hold on? And I think the thing that you and I have always thought through is, is my grit for this stronger than my grit for my family, stronger than my grit for my faith, stronger than my grit for everything else. And if that's the case, then my then it's misplaced. Then I think my grit is misplaced. And I think that a lot of people will sometimes collapse because their expectations outstrip the reality. Or they had far more grit and tenacity for a job or a dream than they had for the calling that God had given them. And maybe that sounds judgmental for friends of mine who who have experienced professional success and have lost their families along the way. But that's just a math I'm not willing to engage in um, because I think that that loss will ultimately, is ultimately a, a loss of long division. And so I think that, you know, um, yeah, LA is still the place where relationships happen, connections happen. I'm in the middle of promoting my film that's coming out. And I, I, I've got a ton of people who I know in LA, hundreds of people who I know in LA who are still here in LA. And we're working as executives, working as agents, working as, 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 as producers, working as whatever. Like there's just this concentration of people here that makes it easier in other places. And I know friends who live in Austin. I know friends who live in, in Atlanta. I know friends who live in some of these other places. And it's harder there because there isn't quite the concentration in L.A. Of, of, of that there are in L.A. Um, so I do think that it's valuable being here, at the very least getting started. But I do think that you have to have this gut check all the time of where does your heart really lie? You know, Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Is your is your treasure in career success? Is your treasure in, um, you know, getting a, a job on a, at a studio? Is your treasure in all these other things? Because if that's it, it's going to fade. And, 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 and the cost to your family is not a cost I'm willing to, to make. And it's a cost that doesn't get... Um counted or measured enough yeah and um i wish more people would just be upfront and honest about the cost that um you know i've often said that this town wars against healthy relationships yeah that it's set up it's designed the 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 way in which the industry and and even just los angeles because you have the industry but then you also have los angeles and how it's spread out it is and it and it um by their natures they they the way things are set up in in both the business and this town is they war against healthy relationships and you have to be so prepared for that and that's one of the things we try to communicate to people obviously with act one and 
and but but it is a it is something that I, I wish we would talk about more and just being prepared and 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 I use these words and I and I know you do the same thing. It's not about being cynical. It's about being honest. It's about being transparent. And we just want people to have all the information, like have all the information so that you can um, um, make make decisions based on all the all the correct data you can possibly get your hands on, you know? Well, and I think I think you're absolutely right. And, and I think part of the reason why the town wars against healthy relationships is because <clears throat> we are dealing with a game that we are told is a zero sum game, which is that, you know, there's a limited amount of success. There's a limited amount of people who can experience that success. And part of this is reinforced by the business that we're in, right? Studios only release so many movies. Um, distributors only are going to release so many films. There's only so much out there that the marketplace can handle in terms of content. There's a limited amount of dollars that people are going to spend on content. And so you're fighting and you're competing with each other for this stuff. And so even believers can buy into the competitive stuff. And in order for me to, it's, and, and, and then there's also this like competition for status, right? Um, if I've made it, then I am somebody. And then you can kind of get into this weird kind of gatekeeping thing where it's like, well, I'm in, but you're not. And I want to make sure that you know that you're not because I experienced success and, and that can be dangerous. And then there's this weird like envy thing we can fall into as believers where, you know, <clears throat> I'm envious because that thing happened for them and this thing didn't happen for me. And I've had people call me or email me and tell me, well, I thought I was the one that was going to be working with Ralph Winter, or I thought I was the one that this was going to happen to. And, and that becomes weird, you know, because, because I, I don't know how to have that conversation. I've always kind of looked at, at, you know, if someone else has success, it's like, oh, well, that's because like, I can't tell your story. I, I, I couldn't write that script. I couldn't do that thing. That's, that's not for me, but, but it's a constant challenge. I think to have to remember that, like if someone's experiencing something that's for them, that's not for me. So their success doesn't rob me of something because that, that wasn't for me. And I think that when we have a faith that lets us know that like God is ordering our steps, it means that I can go like, that's for them. That's not for me. And that's okay. But I think that's hard. And I think the world kind of wars against that. And then you also have the weird kind of thing that happens where it, the, the, that schadenfreude idea of, uh, you know, I can only be pleased when you are not doing well. Because that's a, a whole other thing that is ha that happens in town too, where it's like, we take delight in people's failure. And you go like, well, that's not great either. So it is, there's all these forces that I think, you know, extend out of the business that we're in. And it's not, it, none of that is meant to be a criticism of the business. I think it's, it's just human nature. Carl Gottlieb, uh, the writer of Jaws, once said that filmmaking exposes all of your neuroses. And I think that you're right. There's something that happens when, you know, with a white hot light of Hollywood that exposes our, our brokenness. And I, and I think that's why, you know, just because I, I call myself a Christian doesn't mean that I get a pass. I need to be constantly, like the scripture says, working out my salvation with fear and trembling because I don't want to be that person who is envious of someone else's success. I want to be able to be excited for someone else's success. I think that's something that you do really well, Jimmy, um, is, is be excited for your friend's success. I don't want to be that person that takes joy when someone is falling. Um, I don't, you know, I don't want to be that person that's wondering why I didn't get whatever, you know? And, and, and so I think that, yeah, all those things war on us. And I think that's why we need a savior. That's why we need community. That's why we need faith. 
That's good. That's really good. Yeah, I always say when you when you hear good news from a person that you love, from a friend, a family, or someone you love, and <clears throat> your emotional state, it either it either it fills up like a balloon and you become elated for the person, or you deflate. And and based on what happens when you first initially hear the news, you, you better check your heart. <laughs> You know, like you need to be honest and cognizant of the fact that, okay, wait a second. My heart didn't fill up and I didn't with with elation. Instead, it deflated. Why? What is it? What am I? Why am I not happy for someone who I clearly should be happy for? And that's something that I think as artists, um, we have to be careful of. We have to constantly kind of check our check our spirits with those things. We have to be cognizant of the fact that that we, you know, we can we can be the very things that we are saying other people are struggling with. It's like, these are our struggles too. And we got to be aware of those things. Well, and I think, I think too, you know, it's just being honest, right? Like, you know, my, my, my dear friend, Tobias Aconis had two movies open within six weeks of each other, a couple of years ago, uh, five feet apart and curse of La Llorona. And, and, and both those were, were in theaters. And then Grant Neaporti, who, you know, you know, as well, had his movie, the breakthrough that came out in movie theaters as well. I went to all, all those movies, you know, in the movie theaters to support my friends, I was so excited for them and, and so happy for them because this this business is so hard. Like like Derrickson says, it squeezes you out. You got to find a way to stay in. And and if you can stay in, and especially if you are someone who has your life centered and who is able to navigate this without losing your mind, it's like you want to affirm that. And so I'm I'm excited for you know my friends Grant and and, and Tobias and. And, you know, other guys that I know, Mark Freiberger and, and yourself, and whenever any of us kind of have something good happen, Kevin Wilson, you know, it's like you want to be excited for those guys because it's hard, man. It is. It's a hard slog. Yep. Uh, you are, I think, very. Unless the movies are terrible. If the movies are terrible, like you shouldn't be excited for that. We should, yeah, we should yeah, not what are you be. Gonna do? Yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> it is what it is. What are you gonna do? Uh, uh, okay, so you you are someone who I've always admired in your ability to, um, um. Well, I would call you a discipler, Nathan. You are someone who you are very good in taking time with people to build them up, edify them, challenge them, encourage them. And I, I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, I, b- being out here working in the business, um, the ups and downs that uh, you've had, um, trying to live life as authentically as possible with other people and encouraging them. I'm just curious, Nathan, uh, let's, let's look a little bit at a glimpse into kind of your spiritual life. And because um, I know it actually connects to your creative journey. Um, what, how do you, um, how do you fill your days? I mean, you are, you're incredibly busy. You have a wife and kids, as we mentioned earlier, a beautiful family. Um, and you do a lot of different, um, projects. You got a lot of stuff going on and you're investing in people constantly. So what does a day look like for you in terms of when you are down, um, uh, 
How do you pull yourself back up? Um, what does time with God look like for you? I'm just curious for the audience. Um, as you go out and pour yourself out into other people, um, what do you pour in? How, how do you allow yourself to be poured into so that you can be an instrument of grace and love and truth to other people? <clears throat> Jimmy, I, I take a lot of solace in the music of you too just constant immersion in Bono's words and music. Just that's just where it, that's just where it flows, man. It's just, I'm, I'm, but the vessel for Bono's music. It's, it's incredible. Um, By the way, they, they also know what the melon, melon, <laughs> the color of your skin is. It's a giveaway. It's a bit of a giveaway. It's a bit of a giveaway. Um, you know, I heard a really good talk shortly after my wife and I moved to LA. I've told you the story before about the word submission and and the word submission has always been used or growing up. I heard it used a lot as a, as a weapon against wives. And, and uh, the talk was all about how the word submission needs to come under a mission. And the challenge in the talk was for husbands to have a mission big enough for other people to come under. And, and I was really convicted. It was that opening weekend in LA. And I was really convicted that if, if I was here just to pursue my own filmmaking dreams, it was not a big enough mission. Um, right around the same time I read uh, um, <clears throat> Rick Warren's book, Purpose Driven Life, where he tar- st- starts the book and says, it's not about you. It's a, it's a line that's echoed in Scott Derrickson's movie, Dr. Strange. You know, it's not about you. And, and I think that part of how I've been able to kind of endure the slings and arrows, the ups and downs of life in Hollywood for 20 years is because of, of what you're saying. Kate and I have, have really said we want to invest in people. We want to invest in other people because at the end of the day, you know, if my value and my worth is driven by whether a project got a green light or whether a project got funded or whether a check came in or whatever it is, it's not gonna be enough. Like that's, that's a, that's, that's the, that's a, that's just an empty hole. And so, you know, I was discipled by people all through my high school and college years. I started discipling people in my high school and college years. So, so pouring out into people and investing people, I think there's a little bit of, I don't want to say that it's selfish, but it's a, it's a bit of a release valve in that, in that I've got somewhere else that I can expend my energy um, because this is just not enough. So, so yeah, I've been really passionate about mentoring, whether it's, you know, teaching at APU as I've done over the years, teaching at JP Catholic, right. Where I've taught over the years, uh, speaking at act one, uh, mentoring, you know, uh, you know, people coming into town through, through who find me through different ways or whatever. Kate and I've just really said that matters to us. We've, we've had, you know, people who are assistants at agencies who are going through a hard time sleeping in our house because they, they can't go home. Um, for whatever reason. And so I think that, that we have tried to create a place where we can be agents of grace uh, for other people. And, and I do think that that matters because if all you're doing is chasing work, you know, that, that's just not enough. You know, our work is going to, our work is going to burn someday. You know, like Ralph says, you know, someday it's all going to burn. And what we're going to have is the quality of our relationships. And, and the quality of our relationships, not just in terms of like who is 
with us right now, but, um, but also, um, you know, who's come behind you, you know, that, 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 that old, that old mentoring you that every, every, every person should have a Paul, a Barnabas and a Timothy, right? Someone who's going ahead of them, who can, who can teach them, uh, someone who, who's walking beside them, who's a friend who, 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 who they can share sort of stuff with. And then Tim, a, a Timothy, someone behind you that you are investing in. And so I, I'm very fortunate. I've been into place. I've been put into places where I have a lot of Timothys and, and somebody just a year ago, okay, you know, we're having dinner with a young couple and they said, you know, uh, they were leaving and they said, Hey, we just want to know that we really appreciate your time because you have Ralph Winter. Uh, we have you. And that was really meaningful because I don't feel like I'm worthy of that comparison. I'm, you know, Ralph is somebody whose shoes I would gladly tie. And, and have tied uh, in a metaphorical way. Um, but I do think that there is a role that we all play in, in reproductive leadership and in discipleship and in, um, in being a links in the chain. I still remember you praying, you know, the night that we started this small group in your house, you said, we're, we're just a link in a chain going back to a room of 12 people who believe they could change the world 2000 years ago. And that's, and so I think that that's what it is. You know, it's like, you know, when Paul says to Timothy, what you have, what I have taught you, teach to faithful men who will then teach it, you know, and, and that's where a lot of my, that is where a lot of my sense of worth comes from. My sense of, of validation comes from knowing that I am part of a legacy and I need to pay that legacy forward. Gosh, I love it when you quote me. I sound so wise when you- <laughs> I don't remember any of this stuff. That's one of the things I, I, you are, you are the, I always joke, like my wife is the memory of our family and you are the memory of our relationship. You have all these memories of things. Um, One of them is um, one of the greatest highlights of my life was when you and I sat down one day and we decided to make a movie together. Yes. And this was, now, was this when, so this is where I need your help memory wise. Now, was this in 2006? When did we first talk about making the least of these? We talked about it <clears throat> at Christmas time, 2005. I had just flown back from Tampa uh, at the end of that year. I had just been in uh, Georgia for two weeks on a writing fellowship. It's the first time that someone had optioned a script of mine. And so I had been there for two weeks working with that group. And then I went to, to Tampa. And with my father-in-law and my father and, and I, this script of mine originally called Parker, it became, then it be called, was called at Allentide and it had gone through all these things. Um, and then eventually, you know, it had gotten enough attention that my father-in-law said, what do you, what's your big dream for 2006? I said, I, I want to make a movie. I want to make a feature. And he said, well, do you want to meet some people who could make that happen? I said, yes. And so he introduced me to some some well-to-do people that he knew that were looking to invest in films. And then I flew back from that. We went to Disneyland together with our wives. And you and I spent the whole day uh, talking about the script and talking about the opportunity and talking about what we would do and talking about how we would do it. And I distinctly remember because we were in the Mr. Toad ride. (laughs) And somebody in front of us handed us his card because he was an actor. And he said, you guys really sound like you're going to do this. I would love to be a part of this. Here's my card. And I went only at Disneyland. <laughs> and that guy's name was Toad? Isaiah Washington. <laughs> no, just kidding. And so, yeah. And so it was, it was end of 2005. It took us a little longer than we had hoped, 
um, because it took us a little while longer than we hoped to, to put the money together. But yeah, you know, a year and a half after we said we were going to make a movie together, we did it. We were we were standing on the set of the least of these, and that was a that was a pretty remarkable uh, that was a pretty remarkable pretty remarkable thing. It was, and and you know what's fun about it, Nathan is I I remember you and I having conversations like we would go to some of these events in Hollywood mm-hmm. and we would meet Biola people. media conference. Yeah. And we would meet people who um, God bless them. You know, they, they were unhappy, <laughs> you know, some people I'm going to tell yeah. my, you know, most, yep. but, but we, you and I, we, we would meet these, some of these individuals, they were unhappy and they were maybe older. And so they were grumpy and, and, and they would always talk about, um, what they wanted to do because they never, they never actually made anything. Yep. And I remember you and I on more than one occasion looking at each other and we said, you know what? We don't want to be, we don't want to be those guys where yep. we're, we're looking back on our life and we're saying woulda, shoulda, coulda. Yep. And, and I remember that being one of the driving forces for us to, uh, to make the least of these was we wanted to, if, if we, if we could, we should. That was kind of well, what we wanted to do. Remember how young we were, Jimmy? I was 27, I think. And yep. uh <clears throat> and we already felt like the, the clock was ticking. Yep. Um yep. and so <clears throat> you know, I, I remember being like 29 on the set of least of these and 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 feeling like I I'd caught up to myself. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 that's where you know I do think that there is a value in living in LA and that when there are people around you getting after it. Yep. There is that feeling of like, okay, I here I gotta go. Like I gotta keep doing this, you know? And that is the number one thing that people who move away tell me. Yeah. The number one thing that creatives who who live in Los Angeles and then leave, the number one thing they always say is they miss, they miss the hustle, they miss the scuttlebutt, they miss all the the hey, what are you doing? What are you working on? Pushing people, you know, that the pushing and the prodding uh that you get by living uh out here. Well, it's the same. It's like the same thing in film school. I tell this to to my film students. It's like, guys, you don't understand. You've got access to everything. Once you leave Literally. here, it gets harder to do all of this. So mm-hmm. do it all now, so that and and then let it catapult you out of here. Because once you get out, it's harder. And so I do think that 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 you know, being in LA, like, it, it just kind of makes you, you know, because I th- I think that there is this thing, right? You, we Christians talk about this. Be a person of your word. And that's not just a Christian thing, but but I do think that there is this idea, certainly from our faith, if you believe it, speak it and, and then be held accountable to it. And so, you know, for you and me, we had made short films together. We had done all this stuff. You know, it, it, it we were able to activate each other in terms of our dreams because we were in a place where it, you could do it. And, and then being able to, you know, have Ralph's help, to be able to go over to the Fox lot every day, to be able to to do our cast like it just there's just resources that are here um and and i and that's one of kind of one of the big things that i always tell people when people say like well, what's your advice for for you know whatever it's like start talking about what you're going to do like commit to do it you know commit to do it and a lot of people want to play it safe and i do think there's something about like you know like indiana jones take that step because you know but in la it's a little easier to take that step than if you're in rural west virginia or something like it's just 
it's harder. So I do think that that stop, you know, that, that, that a lot of us as creatives need to stop talking about what we're going to do someday and just start doing it, you know, and, and you and I did, we, we, we started plotting and planning and pulling together our resource and, and the road rose up to meet us. Um, and I think that, that that's, you know, that, that if the road doesn't rise up to meet you, that's okay too. Like it's okay to step out of faith and go, Nope, this isn't for me. Right. And that's okay. You know, but I think for us, it was very, um, I think that was very, you know, instructive for us to say, to, to see that I can, we can, and, and we will. And, and, we the immortal, and the immortal words of Yoda do or do not, there is no try. And that is something that I think a lot of creatives, we get paralyzed by fear or doubt or insecurities and things like that. And the best solution to creative paralysis is to just do something, just do it, just write the script, just go out with your friends and shoot the movie, just go out and send that email, what, whatever it is, like you, you, you've got to correct um, or, or, or the only way you can really correct that is not just to sit in it and stew in it, but, but to actually just do something and you might fail and you probably will fail and you'll probably fail miserably. And, but you have to do something. And as a creative, we have to find a way to exercise our creativity. And you don't do that by just sitting around thinking about it in your mind, you have to actually do something. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, a, a quote that comes to mind is, um, Johann Wolfgang von is pronounced Goethe? I'm not sure. All right. Now you're just making things up. G O E T H E. He says, um, "Whatever you, whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. And there's something to that, like that kind of boldness of of going, I can do this, and I'm going to. Yeah. Like there's there's power in that, and and. <clears throat> maybe, you know, my, my dad always said, if you're going to fail, fail big and learn everything you can from it. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, our attitude with least of these, I mean, gosh, least of these was, was such a learning experience for me in so many ways. And I learned about, about private placement memorandums and, and <laughs> how to structure investment deals and how to put together business plans. And, you know, I'm still learning stuff even now with what remains in terms of, you know, now we're we're publicizing the movie. We're we're getting the word out. We're working with publicists, and we're crafting the narrative of the film. It's like I'm learning so much, um, but I learned so much on that first film that was just so instructive and informative. And and I would not have learned it if if you and I had not shook shaken hands at Disneyland and said, "Let's go." Oh, I remember negotiating contracts about double bangers and 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 uh, and you know ADR days and. I remember being on the phone, literally getting chewed out by uh, one of the top PR people and having to talk to them and tell them to, and I was chewing them out. I mean, it was just, you know, like there's just things you don't, you don't get taught until you actually just jump into the water and actually do it. Like you, for instance, so people don't, okay. So we made this little film called the least of these. It was Nathan and I's attempt to make a, a Available on Amazon. We attempted to make a small independent film. And <clears throat> the goal was to, you know, keep it on the down low. It's a small independent film. We're trying to 
run and gun and get this thing done. And, and lo and behold, Nathan, um, <laughs> this little film, all of a sudden, we find ourselves in Entertainment Weekly. We find ourselves in, I think it was TV back then, that TV Guide still existed. I think TV Guide, all these other. Entertainment Tonight um, was there. Yeah. Entertainment Tonight came to our set, folks. Entertainment Tonight did a, a I think from our set, this little teeny tiny little movie. Yeah. And, but there was a reason for that. You want to tell the story about the star of the film and what happened there just briefly? Yeah, so it's it's day three of our movie. It's Thursday, I think maybe June 7th, around 6, 10 p.m. And uh, our lead actor, Isaiah Washington, I'm in the middle of, uh, remember this, Jimmy? We were in the middle of a shot. We were we were shooting at um, Reve- Rebecca Verstratton McSparren's house. And yep. we were shooting this scene. And <clears throat> he texted me at 6, 10, Isaiah did, and said, um, I've just been fired from Grey's Anatomy. Uh, so get ready. Everyone will be coming for us. Yep. And uh, now, 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 hang on. Let me back that up, though, because you got that text after he told me because I was standing outside the room when he walked out after getting off the phone with Shonda Rhimes, where Shonda Rhimes fired him. And he literally walks out of the room and he goes, well, I just got fired. I mean, I was, I just looked at him like, I'm sorry, what? Well, and the irony of that was that we had just shot a scene in that movie where he got fired. (laughs) (laughs) And literally his last shot that day was him walking out the back of Rebecca's house into the darkness. And uh, suddenly I was sitting there going, well, life has just imitated art. Yes. (laughs) Life has just imitated art. And what was funny about that. So he warned us. He gave us a little bit of a heads up that we might now, of course, because we're two noobs green as, you know, the grass, we, we didn't fully understand what this meant until we show up the next morning. I don't know, around 6 a.m., 6.30, 7 a.m., whenever it was, we were showing up to set. And I kid you not, I'm going to guess I'm bad at guessing numbers, but would you say there was probably about a hundred paparazzi out there? Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah. We, I, I rolled up and thought there's a lot more people working on our movie today than there was yesterday. <laughs> and it was, it was my assistant on the show, Angela, who said, I think that's paparazzi. I was like, Oh, okay. I was still kind of like naive. And then I remember that day because you got on the radio and said, no one talks to them, but me. And, uh, and it was very clear. Cause they were, I mean, they, they remember they got, they got into like our, our costume trailer. Like they yeah. were talking to like yeah. to Heather, our costume person. And, all this kind of stuff. Like it was, it was just kind of crazy what was happening. And, you know, I remember Isaiah was, was on the set with Allison and he just waved at him and, and he put his arm around Allison, like, here's my buddy. And, and yeah, it was, you know, for me as a first time director, right. You know, you're, you're for the two of us on that show together, we're, we're trying to manage this little over a million dollar project and you're cutting checks by hand uh, <laughs> every, <laughs> every day. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, and I'm just trying to, you know, I'm a first time filmmaker, you know, I've made some short films, my first feature. And so we've got, we've got all these crew guys who are like, you know, this was a little bit more money than unemployment, but they're all coming to us from like Indiana Jones and all this stuff. And, and I'm just feeling the pressure of like making our day and trying to keep everybody in, in sync. 
And then suddenly you've got all these paparazzi calling. You know, that day Entertainment Weekly called. Like suddenly we, we had to take a 45 minute break because Entertainment Weekly called and we had to, you know, let Isaiah talk to Entertainment Weekly. Like it was just, you know, to be 29 and to be in that kind of a pressure, it was like, this is bizarre. Like we got we got thrown in the deep end, you know, when um no. when Kevin, what's his name from Entertainment Weekly was on the set and it was just like, what yes. is happening right now? So yeah, it was it was nuts. It was a, it was an it was an odd, it was an odd, odd thing. It's something that we knew at the time that this didn't happen, you know, to, to movies our size in terms of the kind of publicity and press that we were getting. Um, but um, but even now, you know, you look back in hindsight, that much more. It's just insane. It's just insane to think the kind of publicity that we got on on that. And obviously it was because of the controversial nature of you can Google. People can Google what happened. The controversial nature of him getting fired from from uh, Grey's Anatomy. But um, the the so you know well, this is a, but this so is the thing, film, right? This is this is the thing is that you know people people a lot of times will look at a life in Hollywood or a career in Hollywood and go, well, how hard can it be? You know, how hard can it be to to show up on a set and call action and cut? How hard can it be to be a writer and write you know a Batman movie? And the thing is, is that it's, is that, you know, as, as, and I quote him several times on this, um, Derrickson says talent is like the minimum getting into Hollywood. It's being able to deal with all this other stuff. That is where the real challenge lies, you know, and it, and look, it's already hard to competently tell a story with a camera. It's already hard to competently tell a story in a script, but like, this is part of why LA is so hard is that there's all this other stuff. And you never know which relationship is going to be the one that like you don't manage well and it's going to bite you in the butt or you know when are you going to do something that's like stupid and, and people can't forgive it like it's just all this other stuff is what makes it hard and 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 people don't talk about that like the endurance is not just being able to manage the creativity it's being able to deal with what happens when the paparazzi show up what happens you know what you know what happens when you know something befalls someone in your crew or your cast. You know, um, you know, even with what remains, like what happens when you wake up one day and your lead actress isn't there anymore? Like, like all yeah. these things become part of the process that people don't talk about, but that is, is a huge part of what's going to allow you to stay in or not. Yeah. Yep. You know, well, I think that's a good segue over to um, what remains. So you, uh, to take us back. Um, a couple of years ago, well, I guess you had this idea. So you had the idea for what remains uh, for a while. Um, yeah. or do you remember when um, when you finally kind of just got it out on on the page? Um, when when did you when did you get that first uh, first version of the script uh, done? Would you say? Well, it's funny, you know, David. You, know, you and I have talked about this, David People, the whole story of David People's writing Unforgiven, the fact that he wrote it and sold it to Clint Eastwood in 1982. And Clint said, I'm not old enough to tell the story yet. And 10 years later, he decided that he was ready. I do think that there are stories that maybe we want to tell that we don't have the Ken to tell yet, that we don't have the ability, that we're not we're not the artist that we need to be to tell that story yet. M. Night Shyamalan talked about that with The Sixth Sense, that he had started writing The Sixth Sense a couple of years before, and he just was not the storyteller he needed to be. And so with What Remains, I got the story idea for What Remains in 2006. I had, um, Kate and I had a fight in our little apartment in Glendale. 
and I was upstairs kind of, you know, cooling off from the fight or whatever. And I had to go out and get something and from the store because we we're going to have like Bible study that night or something. And I thought, what would happen if I left tonight and the door didn't lock and someone came home and, and murdered my wife? Like, what, what would I feel? You know, especially having just had this conflict with her, like, what, what, how, how horrible would I, would I feel? And, and so I kind of took that idea and I ruminated on it a little bit. And I remember at Sunday, I was talking with somebody about it very briefly and thinking, you know, there had been a couple of stories in the press recently of like people forgiving people at like funerals and, and whatever, who had done horrible things. And, and I remember thinking like, is there a movie in that? And, and I, but I, but I knew that I wanted the movie to start with that. And, and I think that, you know, a lot of times the failures of, of faith-based movies maybe is that they kind of end just, you know, to quote Sean Connery from Last Crusade, just when it's getting interesting. You know, the most interesting thing for me in a story is not the religious epiphany of, oh, I should do this noble thing. For me, the really interesting thing about a journey of faith is what happens after you do that noble thing. And then you have to reconcile that with the skin and bones that you're still in. And so I, I, I distinctly remember two different times I tried to sit down and write what remains. And both times they were terrible starts. And I quit after like page 15. And I just went, I am not the writer I need to be yet. And, and I did. I just kind of put it away in the back of my brain. The first time I tried was 2010. Couldn't crack it. I tried it again in 2014. Couldn't crack it. And then in 2018, I pitched a project to the president of Warner Brothers. And this was, and this is kind of like an insight into like the stupidity of the studio system sometimes. Um, my apologies to anyone from the studio system who might be listening. I would love to work with you. Um, but uh, <laughs> great. We lost that one podcast <laughs> listener. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> We're down to two now. My, um, my manager at the time called me and said, uh, Warner's is taking pitches for this particular project. I don't think they're going to make the movie, but I think you should go in and have a meeting. But you got to crack a thing. And so I spent a month and a half cracking this pitch and, and really got it down to an art and like went in and pitched, pitched my heart out and pitched the president and you know his right hand guy got to the end. And they said, great story. Well told. And I went, darn it. Except I didn't say darn it. And kept it in my brain. But uh, I was like, that's a bad sign. Because whenever you hear whenever you go into a pitch, as soon as somebody says, well told, you, you know, it's death. Like it's dead. Like it's the worst compliment they could be. And so, but I, you know, but, 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 but all I have is hope. So my manager, you know, for the next month called and, and then they, they eventually said, uh, yeah, we're not making this movie. Um, and, and Jeff said, you're going with a, another writer. He, they said, no, no, we're just not doing the project. And this is like what studios will do. They'll like, you know, do this thing. And then they like, they waste everybody's time, they waste their own time, whatever. And I was so frustrated. And Kate said, what would you write if you didn't have to go through that experience again? What would you write that was just for you? And I knew exactly what I was and, and, and by that time, it had been four or five years from the last time I tried to crack what remains. It had been 10 years from when I first had the germ of the idea. And I sat down and it flowed out of me in, in six weeks. Um, and first, I pitched out to a bunch of my friends, to Scott Teams and Chris Riley and Dean Batali, my wife and, and, and several, you know, Claire Sarah. And, and they all said, you should write that story. And then I did, and I wrote it, and then I gave it to them all again and said, uh, surely I can't make this, right? And they all said, 
of course you should don't call me Shirley. Um, and, and then I sent it to, and then I reached out to a bunch of my friends. I reached out to, to Corey Pollard and I reached out to some other friends and said, would you, would you want to make a movie with me? And they all said, yes. And I, and I, I, I do think that's another reason why living in LA is a good thing because you're just around people who can help you do it and who can do things that you can't and who can help you do things at, at, a, at a quality that you can't. Corey Pollard is a top of the line first television, first AD who wanted to transition to producing, you know, um, Brandon Lepard, who I ultimately wasn't able to work with on this one, but he's a great DP. I worked with him on a music video that I did. William Armstrong, I wasn't able to work with on this one ultimately, but he's a great production designer. Like you have all these resources that can just kind of help pull things in. And so, you know, you know, and, and one of the other reasons why I think it's valuable in LA is that there's a, there's just an expectation of quality that people have where people know, you know, Corey knows the difference between a good script and a bad script. Brandon knows the difference between a good script and a bad, bad script. And so I asked my friends if they would come along the journey with me and they all said yes. And, and then I gave it to Ralph and Ralph read it over the Christmas holiday and January, uh, January 2nd, we went over to his house. Kate and I did had dinner with him and his wife, Judy, and we had wine, a, a not altogether uncommon experience for, for the four of us when we get together. And at 1030 that night, he asked me two questions about the script and said, I'm in, I'll produce this for you. And then, and then, you know, Kellen Lutz was my first and only choice for Troy because I'd known Kellen for a long time and I knew that Kellen would be right for it. And, and I sent it to Kellen and Kellen said, yes. And I was able to say, Hey, I'm working with Ralph on it. And so that was sort of a, a creative uh, barometer for him. And then we, you know, we, you know, I got together at Sundance and we talked about it some more with Ralph. And so it just kind of snowballed, but it, but it, it, yeah, it, it came together very quickly. It was a hundred page first draft that turned into an 80 page final draft. And the only thing that really changed was that I took a bunch of stuff out, mm-hmm. but it, it, it changed very little from that first draft in, 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 in October of 2018. Wow. So you find yourself connecting to uh, some investors out of Texas and you find yourself shooting it in Texas by the time. So, so see 2018, January, 2000 was it January, 2018 or January, 2019. I'm sorry. 19, 19 was when Ralph said January, 2019. And then you find yourself shooting when, when did you start, when did you start shooting? September of 2021. Okay. So um, which, you know, uh, for people who are listening to this podcast, that I know, I know people might think, well, that's a couple of years. That's like light speed in this business. <laughs> um, so you find yourself shooting in Texas, and you you come up with a really interesting strategy because uh, you are um, one of the things that you do is you, you teach uh, directing and filmmaking at at, at this um, small um, Catholic school in the San Diego area, um, yeah. and you came up with the idea of of uh, using the students and, 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 and alumni talk a little bit about that. kind of like your, you guys, strategy of how you wanted to shoot this film in Texas. So, yeah. So a couple of pieces kind of came together simultaneously. You know, when my wife said, what would you write if you didn't have to ask permission? It was like, what would you love to write? And, and this story came. And then the next question very easily was, well, who would you love to work with? And I do think that, you know, I like to lead relationally. Uh, relational leadership is very important to me. 
it's hard on a film crew where you've got 60, 80 people. You don't know them. You don't know their in and outs. They don't know you. You're trying to figure each other out. By the end of your time shooting, you're just maybe starting to get to know each other. And you're doing it in this pressure cooker environment where you're not really getting to know each other your best. A lot of times you're getting to know each other your worst. And you're trying to minimize minimize that. Um, so I knew that I that 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 you know Ralph had said on least of these, he had said, cast as well behind the scenes as you do in front of the camera. And so for me, it was really important that who I was collaborating with was as important as the project on which I was collaborating. And because I've I've worked down in San Diego with these film students, it's like I, I knew how hard they were working. I knew how dedicated they were. And I knew how hungry they were and how eager they were to, to want to work on a project. And there had been a trend about a decade ago where a bunch of film schools decided to make feature films at the film school. And, and, and some colleges that you and I know had done it. And I'm not convinced that that is necessarily the best way to make a movie because a lot of times you're asking film students to step in and be the dp and be the production heads and be the department heads and do everything and to me that can sometimes feel a little exploitative and it doesn't necessarily get necessarily the best results because you're learning as opposed to actually having mastered your craft and filmmaking is a craft so i knew that i didn't want to do something like that and i've been a part of a project that had 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 that as a working environment and it just was it just was so so hard on everybody but i really liked the idea of trying to create an environment where i could hire i could bring in my 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 professional friends and i could crew them up with young filmmakers eager to get their first start and so while i knew that i didn't want this to be like shot by students in terms of like having it be a dp i knew that you know, there would be like three or four or five students who, who would be eager to be camera PAs on a big project. And so what, what, what I was able to do was leverage my relationships with the school where we basically, you know, we, we, we sort of created a space where students could get hired onto the show. And part of that was me working with Corey Pollard, Corey, our, you know, my, my producer on the film, uh, is really big into workplace development, trying to develop and, and train and equip filmmakers and do all this stuff. And so it was kind of kismet in the sense that he really wanted to sort of uh, try out this workforce development process of training people. And I had this sort of like group of about 20, 22 kids who were willing to work on the project because it was me who I knew, who I knew their skill sets and I could kind of place them in good positions and so it kind of worked out serendipitously. And so as a result, our costume department, our, you know, our G&E department, our camera department, production designers, they were all professionals who were able to mentor and train and work with some of the younger members of the crew. And, and some of these relationships, you know, like Corey Cast, who was our, our, our AD, I had actually taught Corey like seven or eight years ago. And Corey had subsequently moved to LA and had started on the assistant directing track. And so he wound up being our first AD. Um, on our show, he did a great job for us. And so some of these people who I, I knew, I was able to just kind of pull in relationally. And the school was very clear. They were like, we want no part of this project. We, we, we did this once. We, we don't want to do it again. It was really hard. Um, but they did sit up and take notice. And now they've decided to, to go and do, and do more of that, which I think is great. Um, and, and, and do like a feature film project pro- program again, where they, where they put students to the paces. But for me, it was like, I really wanted this to be a hybrid of, you know, older, established, experienced artists 
who could mentor and train new young storytellers. And, and that was kind of the ethos that we had. And so, you know, we, they came to Texas and we paid them and we paid them a fair wage and we took care of them and looked out for them. And, and, and it really became this kind of really unique sort of like, I don't want to call it camp because it was very much a professional environment, but it was, it was, it was fun. It was kind of like what you want filmmaking to be. Yeah. That's great. I, I, um, I love the heart behind what you're describing and having seen the film and seen the quality um, that you guys accomplished, I think people should sit up and take notice for, I think it's a, I think it's a, I think it's a really, um, um, really cool process that you guys established. Um, well, and, and, you know, and part of that was it, it wouldn't have happened without the support of, of Sharp and Iron Studios, who was, our studio financier coming out of Texas. And, and part of how that happened was Ralph called me. He was in Tokyo shooting a project for Michael Mann. And he called me in November and said, Hey, you've got our movies set in Texas, right? I said, yeah. He said, well, you know, I've met these guys. They've got money. They're, they're, they're wanting to put together a studio in Texas. Uh, and this was in the fall of 2020. And, and, and they had ironically enough, this, this studio, Sharp and Arm Studios had just formed a relationship with um, Amarillo college based in Amarillo, Texas, to do kind of the same thing. And so they heard that we were going to be doing, that we were trying to create this training program, this mentoring program. They got really excited about it because they want to train and mentor students coming out of the panhandle. And so even though they weren't able to kind of get resource, local resources together for it, it was this kind of cool like mission where our, our alignment, we, we were, you know, our spirit aligned with their spirit and, and we were able to kind of do what we did with the support of, of, of our Texas, of our Texas studio, because we weren't able to do it without in terms of putting people up and, and giving us the studio resources. And I think, uh, I think Sharper and Iron was surprised at the sheer amount of printing that we did on a given day with call sheets and shooting schedules and revised call sheets and new drafts of the script, and blah, 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 blah. Um, so I think they were probably surprised at, at what we needed. But I think it was a good learning experience for, them, experience for them too, in terms of learning like what it takes to make this go, because it it requires a lot. So you both wrote and directed. If I made you choose, which would you choose? Would you choose to, if you could only go forward, only writing or only directing, which would you choose and why? Hmm. And I am making you choose, by the way. Yeah, I know you are. I know you are. I know you are. You know. <laughs> There is something about uh, sitting on the set while actors take something that you did and they just elevate it. And then being able to go in the editing room and sit with your editor and craft it. And then to be able to sit with my composer and figure out the musical language of it. And even now, you know, as we're kind of going through the process of press and publicity, I'm really enjoying this process. Um, you know, and, 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 and you know, I got I got a chance. I, I shot a couple of episodes of a TV show uh, this summer for um, a show that's going to premiere for Sony next year. And again, like to kind of be at the center of this energy, you know, it's kind of like Christmas because you've got all these people doing all this amazing work. And it's all, it's like, it, it is, it's like Christmas. You're, you, you get to sit there and, and, and be like, wow, all this. And then you got to try to figure out how to like arrange it and hone it, refine it and all that stuff. And it's, it's so fun. Like, it's so like, you know, the least of these 
was hard. It was a lot of work. I had a lot of learning to do. I had a lot of growing up to do. I had a lot of, I had a lot of humbling that I needed to experience. And Jimmy Duke was part of the, that humbling a little bit. Um, but, but, but I think that what remains and the experience of making what remains, you know, I told my wife every day, I would call her at the end of the day and say, I, I don't deserve the movie that I'm getting. Like, it's so good. And then, you know, the same thing with, with the show for Sony this summer to be like, this is, you know, my showrunner came to me at the end of the thing and said, this is, this is good television. You just made good television. Like that was very re- relieving. Um, well, and, the, and the interesting thing about that example that you bring up is, you know, least of these and what remains, you're directing what you, you're, you're directing your script, your yeah. word, but yeah. that TV show, you're directing someone else's word. So you're, that is something that, 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 just get your just get your heart pumping. The idea yeah. of it's really cool. Well, and, and to be able to kind of interpret something, you know, and again with with what remains, we we already started out with a pretty spare script. It was seventy eight pages. Yeah. The the final movie is sixty nine pages, um, script wise, because there's just so much that there's so many words that you don't need. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're when you're kind of on the set, you know this. You've directed it. Like when you're on set and and you go like, oh yeah, a look will do just fine. You know, um, and, and, you know, with TV, you, you don't really get the chance to, to, to do that. My, my showrunner uh, said that I could edit my episodes or work with the editor at my episodes as long as they didn't cut anything out. Um, so, you know, you'd have to be respectful when it's someone else's words that you're messing with. And, and so I certainly am aware of that. But, but yeah, when, when an actor is able to sum up with one look or one beat, you know, a whole line or a whole story, it's just, it's amazing. So, so I, I, I loved it. I, I really, I found myself loving the process of, of what remains. And we got to the end of those 17 days in Texas and there were people who were so emotional. Um, and one of the things that one of the guys who's experienced came up to me and said is, do we have to stop? Like, this is, this is such a remarkable experience. I don't, I don't want this to be over. Like with, with least of these, I was, I was ready for a good long sleep, um, you know, and, and, and to, and to process what I, had needed to learn from that experience because it was a lot, and and that's not to say anything about Lisa. You made a good little movie, but but I had I, I I learned on that one what I needed. I learned that I needed to learn, uh-huh. and with what remains, it was really fun to demonstrate what I learned, not just as a writer but also um, as a filmmaker. I was at a, a talk that Sam Wasson just gave a couple of weeks ago. Um, Sam Wasson is a film historian and film film writer, graduated from my college, and he said in his talk. TV aesthetics are different than film aesthetics. And I hadn't really thought about that before, but it's true. Like with TV, it's about coverage. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, I just, I just got to get stuff off with, with film. It really is about like how we use the camera and using the camera to tell the story. And, and on what remains, I was really able to do that. I think in a lot of ways, it was fun designing shots. It was fun. sort of trying to tell a story with a shot. It was fun trying to figure out, okay, how can this shot tell a story? How can this shot convey something? And that was really fun. And, and I, you know, I hope, I hope I get the chance to do it again. Well, and you did a, I mean, the casting obviously for the film is, well, there's, I want to touch on this a little bit. The casting is, is, is so great. Uh, You and I have a friendship with Cress Williams that um, he's so good in the film. And I, and it goes a little bit to what you were saying earlier back when you were talking about how, what compels you to film and you talked about the thematic nature of filmmaking and 
Cress's performance, you you created a role. I so I'm not kind of spoiling the movie or giving anything away, but um, you know, it's a it's a small town, it's a small town kind of crime thriller um and um drama and it and Cress's character um is he go he he has to um not only solve a a um a literal kind of problem crisis with his son, but he has to solve an existential crisis uh, within himself. And, and you cast him. So well. he does such a good job. I, I told Chris, man, when he has that beard, he just has such gravitas, <laughs> but yeah. um, talk a little bit, if you can, obviously we don't want to give spoilers, but um, the film to you is about what? It's about doing the right thing and about the cost of doing the right thing. It's about forgiveness and it's about the cost of unforgiveness. Yeah. You know, and, and what is it about those themes? I mean, you talked earlier about kind of the, the impetus for the story, but I'm curious why those themes, um, why those themes are so important to you, or, or, or maybe, maybe important is not even the right word. Why, why do you think those themes emerged in the process of the creation of this film? And, and why are those themes so important to you um, as a filmmaker and as a, and as a person of faith? Well, it's funny, Jimmy, because, you know, I, I didn't actually connect the dots on this until halfway through the editing process with what remains. But if you remember in least of these, an iconic scene close to the end of the movie features Andy Lawrence confessing a sin to Isaiah Washington, trying to avoid spoilers for those of you who might want to see what uh, least of these, which is currently available on Amazon by DVD. Um, but Andy Lawrence is delivering this monologue and he's trying to process what someone said to him before he committed a horrible crime. And he said, you know what that guy told me? I forgive you. And it forces Andy into tears. Uh, Andy Lawrence, a great, great actor, by the way. I love working with that kid. He's so good. Um, and that same scene and those same lines reappear halfway through this movie, where one character says to another, you know, do you know what this person said to me? I forgive you. Could I do that? Could you? And he says it in that moment, asking for forgiveness that he's not going to get. And and I think that all of us, probably, if we were honest with ourselves, have things that where we wonder, have I committed the unforgivable sin? Have I, have I done something that placed me outside the boundaries of grace? You know, we, as a culture, we all want to sing that Lady Gaga song, you know, I'm, I'm born this way, that sort of defiant, uh, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And I was thinking about this and going, I wonder why we are as a culture so desperate to tell people that we are fine the way we are. And I think it's because at the end of the day, we know there is something wrong with us. And there is something in us that cries out for forgiveness. You know, I, I'm certainly dealing with this as a father with my children. I, I need to go to my kids at times and say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And my children have the right to either say yes or no. 
And that's scary. But I do think that we are we live in a culture and a time more than ever where we don't really want to be forgiven because if we if we have to ask for forgiveness, we have to confess that we've done something wrong. And I do think that our Catholic brothers and sisters have something to this, to the idea of confession being a sacrament, that it is sacramental to confess and ask for forgiveness. There is something holy and sacred in that. Um, that all this, all of us. This talk about unconditional love, so I don't need to apologize for anything. It's like, well, that's not the Jesus that I believe in. Because the Jesus that I believe in said, forgive them, Father, they're out of their minds. They don't know what they're doing. And so I think that 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 certainly from a, a from a faith perspective, I'm haunted by the need for forgiveness. From a cultural standpoint, I'm fascinated by the audacity of people who say, I don't need forgiveness. I think one of the worst cultural lies that was introduced came from a movie, Love Story, in the 1970s, saying love means never having to say you're sorry. I don't think that's true. I think love means having to say you're sorry every day. Certainly those of us who are married understand that, or married guys anyway. Um, you know, and as a result, we need forgiveness. And, 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 you know, and it's interesting because what remains, you know, I've gotten a lot of responses from it because we did, we did, we tested it not like in a formal way, but we sent it out for a lot. And, and, and some of the biggest pushback I got was from believers um, who said, you know, that they disagree with the choice that one character makes in the movie um, because, you know, that's not justice. And I said, well, yeah, but, but we have this dichotomy in the scriptures where we have the sense of justice, but we also have the sense of mercy. And, 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 and if we believe in anything in our faith, it's that mercy triumphs over justice. It doesn't mean that justice doesn't exist, but it's that mercy must be a stronger force than justice. And mercy starts with the ability to say, I forgive you. And that's not where it ends, but it certainly starts. And so, so I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I'm, you know, so, so at all those levels, I'm, I'm fascinated, but I'm also confronted with the fact that daily I need to ask forgiveness for my wife, for my children, for my friends, I'd gone through a season just before the writing of the movie where I had had to check in with some people who I had sort of fallen out of relationship with and say, is there anything that I did to make this happen? And if so, I'm sorry. And some people accepted it and some people didn't. Um, but there were also some things, not to get too personal, but there were some things in, in terms of extended family that I had to, that God was sort of asking me to confront and and what's interesting was that the point the process of writing the movie i think made me ready for when somebody came to me and said i need you to forgive me i'm so sorry where i was able to say i'll be over to your house in 20 minutes i'll sit with you and i'll cry with you and i'll hold you and it'll be okay so i do think that i had personal relationship to the subject matter and personal relationship with the idea of forgiveness but i think there's also you know, cultural reasons why forgiveness, I think, matters. Um, and and I think that we as a culture need to take on this notion of what do we forgive? Because we are in a world right now where cancel culture and Twitter and it, it we, 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 we will we gladly crucify each other. It's interesting as we go sort of more post-Christian, in some ways, we're going back to pre-Christian days of, of Rome, you know, throw them in the, throw them in the, Throw them in the Colosseum. <laughs> Let the lions tear at them. You know, and we kind of, it's this weird kind of blood sport that we have as a culture that is really troubling. And it it starts, I think, from our unwillingness to forgive people. You know, and it doesn't mean that, that 
you know, the Harvey Weinsteins of the world or whatever don't need to, 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 to answer for their crimes. But when we, when we sort of are gleefully trying to find how we can crucify each other, you know, uh, I, I have some friends who are ex-Christian, ex-evangelicals, who sure seem to have a lot of righteous anger that they direct at anyone who disagrees with them. And to me, that's just a case of switching teams because now you've just become the monster that you were decrying. And I think that's a problem. Yeah, that's really good. Really well said, bro. I, I've said for a long time now that I think that Jesus's teaching on forgiveness is his hardest teaching. It's his, yeah. it is his hardest teaching. How many times? How many times? Yeah. And Seven we don't, times? and, and we, you know, in typical, you know, Christian fashion, evangelical churches, we, we romanticize everything. Yeah. And so, you know, it all just seems so easy to just preach a message or do a Sunday school lesson and just think to yourself, okay, isn't well, this is what nice. Yeah. Isn't that nice? Yes. You know, if someone cuts you off on the road, instead of cussing them out, you know, forgive them and just move on. And I think what your film does, is it goes, no, 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 no. <laughs> yes, that is, that is something we should do. But the idea of forgiveness is a hard teaching. And your film says, we're going to wrestle with that. We're going to examine it. We're going to talk about it. And it, and you do it in such a it's a such a such a good film, Nathan. You did such a good job. I really hope everyone rushes out to see it opening weekend and downloads it and whatever it bootleg. No, don't bootleg it. But, but whatever you gotta do. <laughs> but um <laughs> you don't have to bootleg it. I have copies, I'll give them. No, just <laughs> um, but, but uh but I, I want people to see the film because the film it's a film so first and foremost it's 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 entertaining but but it but it goes to your greater kind of value for dealing with films that 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 deal with themes that are important that we want to talk about you know yeah. like that that are that that we want to kind of wrestle with and this is something that i think is uh it's the most here, here's one of the best compliments i can give you right and i think i i think i told this to you before it's the most unchristian Christian film you can see, right? <laughs> well, well, it's interesting because we had a lot of debates about this uh, when we were making it um, because we were trying to go, this isn't really a faith-based film. What is this? And it only occurred to me a couple weeks ago when I was doing an interview where I said, it's a movie, it's not a faith-based movie, but it is a movie about faith. And I think, and I think that, 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 that with this film, we really kind of want to, you know, I think a lot of faith-based films should take the, take the forgiveness as an assumption, right? Of course, he's going to forgive. He's going to wrestle with it, but then he's going to forgive. And then it's going to work out. And, and I'm really interested in the story of the prodigal son after the prodigal son comes home. And the older brother has to confront the prodigal son coming home. Like, and that's the genius of, of Jesus as a storyteller, is that he, he doesn't let his characters off the hook easily. And, and, and with this movie, you know, one of the interesting things about it is that I've heard from people who say, oh, I, I really don't like Cress's character, but I really like Marcus's character, his son, or I, I really like Anne's character. Um, like the hardest thing I think when crafting a story is to try to craft a story where every character is right in their own mind and the audience can go, I agree with her, I agree with him, I agree with him. 
And, 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 and as a writer and a storyteller, you've got to kind of go, well, I agree with all of it, right? You've got mm-hmm. to be even handed in terms of how you do it. And so, and so, you know, this whole thing of forgiveness. Yeah. If forgiveness can't be easy and we can't make it a flannel graph and we can't, because as Crest says, you know, when Marcus says, how can you forgive this guy? And Crest says, I can't, you know, it's one of those rare, rare moments of, of honesty in the movie from Crest where he divulges sort of his inner thought process. He says, you know, uh, I forgave him at the funeral thinking I would never have to see him again. Mm-hmm. But it's another thing to forgive somebody from far away. It's another thing to have to do it every day up close. Mm-hmm. And, and what does that look like? As we, as you know, the scripture says we're supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Then, then that means that it is, it is a hard, agonizing process, right? Of moving from where we've been to where we could be. And I, and I, I you know, I don't want us to be let off the hook easy because, because it's easy to, to, to sort of make, um, you know, Ava DuVernay says that every year we dust off the Martin Luther King bust. We take him out, we put him on the table on Martin Luther King Day, and we put him back up on the on the shelf until next year. It's very easy to make these noble things stoic and unrelatable. And and I wanted to look at the cost of forgiveness. And I think the movie says the cost of forgiveness is significant. It should be. But the cost of unforgiveness is so much greater, right? And, and I think that, you know, as, as Christians, a lot of times we settle for easy themes. And, and somebody once taught me that, you know, sometimes thematic storytelling is not about choosing the greater of two goods. Sometimes it's just the lesser of two evils, mm-hmm. you know? And so if this movie is about unforgiveness is evil or unforgiveness can lead to evil, then forgiveness, however hard it must be, is going to be a better choice than 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 the alternative because look at what look at where Crest goes because of his willingness to forgive and and look at where Marcus goes mm-hmm. you know but 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 again making it hard you as a writer you want to make your as hard as, as possible for your characters you want to put them through the compressor you want to put them through the ringer because I think that's what life does to us really you know you look at at at, at Satan and, and God and Job and 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 Satan's just trying to figure out how how close can I get to his skin. You know, and and God's trying to set up these boundary lines of here, but no farther. It's like, you know, um, I think John Eldridge says that the the evil one is a uh, um, he doesn't fight fair. You know, <laughs> right. he, he's not convenient, and he doesn't take what we are willing to give. Yeah, so well said, Nathan. I want to end with this. Um, oh, we're, we're ending. Oh boy, we're we're wrapping up. <laughs> we haven't talked about. Well, been, we haven't, I, talked, I, we haven't I, talked about all the hard stuff. We haven't talked about. Yeah, you know, well. Well, they're welcome to come when we're hanging out and come here, just you and I talking for, you know, um, but for their sake, um, I want to, I want to close with this. You, 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 um, you made mention of it earlier in our conversation. Um, you know, we were joking about kind of the craziness that hit us while we were shooting the least of these, you experienced something um, tragic um, after shooting what remains, and it's not something that is common in this business. And 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 because it happened um, once again, you know, you've had pop. I don't, I don't say paparazzi, but you've had press and things like that. And um, so, what I'm talking about, obviously, is your lead actress and Hesh. Um, she passed away. Um, you were you were already 
pretty much you hadn't locked picture, but you were pretty much done for the most part. Um, no, we, we, had, we, had lo- we had locked picture. We were we were actually we were we were done. We were we were okay. Completed. So you unlocked. Okay. We we unlocked it after she passed. Okay. So you'd go the, and then over this tragedy strikes. Yeah. And what I I remember I remember you and I kind of processing it. And I remember expressing to you at the time that I thought this is something that Nathan is prepared for. Um, I thought to myself, God has uniquely prepared Nathan for this. And this is not something that you sign up for. This is not like, you know, Hey, we're all, we're all going to the list and we're going, okay, God, prepare me for this and prepare me for this. And this isn't something that you would have ever chosen to be prepared for. But I, but I will have to say to you, my friend, I think that over the years, um, God has developed you into the man that you are today to have prepared you for this moment. And I'd love for you just to share just a little bit about this moment that you guys have included at the end of the film. Um, You wrote about it. um, Variety, your friend at Variety had asked you to write about it. Can you talk just briefly about this kind of beautiful moment you had with Anne on set that actually got captured on on uh, on film can you talk a little bit about that yeah so you know i mean look at the end of the day the reality is that when you're on set you're, you're on set to tell a story and, and you got to be trying to get the story you got to be getting your shots and all that kind of stuff and and you know what was great about how Corey produced the movie physically just being on set was that we had a full schedule we never had a rushed schedule and what that meant was that we had we had opportunities to connect. We had opportunities to rehearse. We had opportunities like we we took things like hour long lunches, which is not not common in what we do. And it meant that we had moments to connect as people. And Anne came to our, our set open, and she came to our set ready to. She said on her first day, she said, "Just put me where you want me. I'm ready to be used." And And I think that hurt her in some places in her life. Because when you put yourself out there to be used, people will not always use you well. And and when she said that, I just knew in my heart that she was, we were going to work well with her. We were going to care for her. We we're going to look out for her. And and we and we did that i think through the whole show and i think she felt valued i think she felt i think she felt what she hoped for other projects to feel which was listened to and heard and appreciated and so the the tragedy of her passing is very much connected to the beauty of what we experienced on the set and and where that moment came from on her last day was you know, and, and and again, your job is to get the the stuff done. But I think a lot of times we miss moments that I would moments of grace if we're just just focused on getting the job done, and we miss the humanity of it. And so I was so gra- grateful that I did not miss this moment of humanity because we were waiting for a plane. I said, uh, "Be still for the plane," and Anne just started saying one particular day, "Be still and know that I am God," and I started harmonizing. 
And she, she looked at me like with this five-year-old face and said, oh, you know that song? I said, yeah, man, I'm a pastor's kid. I know that song. And so she grabbed me after we did the take and said, can we do that again for my social media? Because nothing is real until it's on social media. And I still have the video. She sent it to me that night. And we started talking about music. We started talking about songs. And she said, I love old hymns. I love old hymns. I said, what's your favorite old hymn? And she said, it is well with my soul. And so I recorded myself that night singing, it is well with my soul. And I sent it to her. And it wasn't until long after we'd wrapped, I read her autobiography. And I read the stories of how she would be locked in a bathroom at six years old. And all she would have was the Bible. And all she would have were those old hymns. And so we kind of fell into this relationship where I knew that music was a gift to her. And we had, we had one particular day on our, one of our off days, cause I play some guitar and, and do some worship leading. And so we had a bunch of the crew over about 15 folks over the house. And we just sang for about an hour and a half. It was just beautiful. We just sang together and, uh, and she heard about it and she texted me and said, Hey, on my last day, could you have, could you gather your choir? And have them sing to me. My choir. Yeah, these crew hands. <laughs> but I said, okay, and we'll do that. And so we we were finished shooting her stuff at Victory Tabernacle Church out in Amarillo, outskirts of Amarillo. And we we wrapped her, or you wrapped her. And then I put my arm around her and I, I walked her towards the church. She said, Uh oh, Nathan, I'm I'm nervous. What are you doing? You bring me to church? I said, Hey Ann, you told me. To gather my choir she said yes 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 i did and then she scampered into the church like a little girl and i sat at the piano and members of the crew sort of quietly walked in and we just sang amazing grace together and it was so funny was i forgot about this but she she wanted to find her phone she wants to bring her phone to her so she could capture it um so she could hold it close to her and our, our behind-the-scenes team, Andrew Koltnick and Lou Myers and Teddy Halloran, happened to be there. It was totally unplanned, but they recorded the whole thing and filmed it. And, and it was just this, like, little grace note. And, you know, you can see it in the, the footage that People magazine released. There's this gasp on her face when I start singing, and I heard it, and, it, and my voice breaks slightly as I start singing because the the excitement that she felt hearing those opening notes i don't know it just it broke something i don't know and so we so we did we sang it together and it's a beautiful moment in the movie she she loudly just says that was the best blessing of all time she says as she as she walks off and and then when she died her agent called me and said i've got a recording of her singing leonard cohen's hallelujah that maybe you could use in the movie. And I said, Paul, I've got something better. And, and I, look, I love me some Leonard Cohen, but, but, but Leonard Cohen, I, it's a, it's, it's a song we've heard. And so we did my, my editor, Lonnie Irvin, our sound guy, Joel Catalan. I, I got Andrew Colton, you've sent me the footage. And I said, we have, we have to put this in, the, we have to put at least a portion of this in the credits now. And what's interesting I do think that when people die, sometimes they leave you gifts. And I do think that 
you know, the movie always ends on a bit, has always ended on a bit of an ambiguous note. It's always, there's always a, a note of ambivalence, of ambiguity at the end of the movie. And I think the ironic thing is that including a little portion of Amazing Grace now in the end of the credits, it just provides a little bit of a grace note at the end of the film, a little bit of a lift, a little bit of a, of a sense of hope. It provides a little bit of that emotional catharsis that I think audiences are looking for. And I do think that Anne left me and us with that little gift of she's okay. And, uh, and I have to say, you know, it's interesting. The press stuff um, has been complicated to wade through because you don't want her death to overshadow her life and you don't want her death to overshadow her work. And so it was interesting because when we, when people leaked that footage, there were some comments on, on either entertainment weekly or people where somebody said, how dare that woman sing about grace. And that just made me angry because as a Christian, I go, how can she not? And so there might be some people who watch that movie and for whom her reputation makes them go, what's she doing? Well, I know exactly what she was doing. And I know exactly who she met in that moment. And I know exactly who was calling to her on her set. And I know exactly who I think was waiting for her when she went home. Mm, that's beautiful. You know, I think it's a great summary of our conversation today because I think the moment of grace that you guys offered to her and in return, she offered back to you guys, that moment of grace that God provided for all of you. In a sense, that moment doesn't happen if you guys don't put all the work into getting you to that moment, getting you to that place, mm -hmm. to that opportunity. And that's why I believe that you were uniquely created for that time. And the fact that you guys built such a communal family oriented set made something like that more possible, gave probably made her feel more comfortable, gave her that sense of freedom. Uh, in those moments. And um, uh, I think that just goes to the greater ethic that you have and that you've developed as a filmmaker out here, bro, that, um, and I just, I'm so proud of you. And I think it's such a beautiful thing. And I really hope that people watch the film and support the film. And um, it's um, at what remains film uh, on on Instagram, they can see if it's playing either in the theaters um, beginning December 2nd, yeah. um, or, or they can check it out um, online. And then, um, so Nathan, I love you, buddy. This has been awesome. I've really enjoyed this conversation. And um, I think that our audience is going to get a lot out of this. I, I always ask my uh, guests if uh, I can close the podcast by praying for them. Would you allow me to do that? No, no, I will <laughs> not. <laughs> I can't imagine. I, I was, I've been no. waiting for someone. I've been waiting for someone to say that. And of course, it's you. <laughs> yes, no, it would be, uh, it'd be an honor. And, you know, and, and Jimmy, I just, I do just appreciate the time and the chance to connect like this. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of, of you. And, and I think you're just, uh, you know, one of those guys that is uh, creating 
conversations like this and spaces for conversation like this that matter. You know, we don't talk about this stuff enough. So thank you for all your leadership and everything you do to spearhead uh, so many things like this. It's it's so important, bro. And you've got your own uh, goals and things that projects that you're pushing on and working for. And I hope that somebody someone will be interviewing you. <laughs> so yeah, I'll no, interview I myself. It. I'll interview myself. <laughs> so Jimmy, I'm just kidding. Um, mutual admiration society. I love you, bro. This is, um, I just want people to get to know you and know your heart and, and obviously know your work. And, um, so yeah, this has been great. So let me, let me, let me close this in prayer. Thank you. Heavenly father. We just thank you. Oh, we just pause and stop and thank you. I thank you for Nathan. I thank you for his friendship. I thank you for his love for you and his love for other people. And Thank you for how you have gifted him with um, not only with great talent, but with grit and resilience. And God, I, I pray a blessing upon all the work that comes from his hands. God, I pray that, um, that his films and his stories would find their ways into the hearts and minds of audiences all over the world. And God, I pray for his family. I pray for his wife, his his uh, beautiful family, his daughters. God, I would pray for all of his work, both uh, inside of this industry and outside of it. God, I pray that um, you would continue to use Nathan in a powerful way um, to um, be a blessing and benefit to those around him. And uh, we love you, God. Thank you for this time today. We pray this in Jesus' name and your promises we stand. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Act One Podcast. Celebrating over 20 years as the premier training program for Christians in Hollywood, Act One is a Christian community of entertainment industry professionals who train and equip storytellers to create works of truth, goodness, and beauty. The Act One program is a division of Master Media International. To financially support the mission of Act One or to learn more about our programs, visit us online at actoneprogram.com. And to learn more about the work of Master Media, go to mastermedia.com.